This episode of Policing Matters is brought to you by Polco. Learn how you can gather resident insights on the state of law enforcement in your community. Visit info.polco.us. Hey, thanks for listening. You're listening to Policing Matters on PoliceOne.com. I'm your host, Jim Dudley. Over the past few years, we've heard about the needs to end the drug war, reform juvenile justice, reform the bail system, and reform or overhaul the justice system altogether. We have seen some of the unintended consequences of these reforms put into action, including rising crime and homicide rates. Our guest today has written a book just released called Criminal Injustice as in criminal injustice. Rafael Mangual is a senior fellow and head of research for the Policing and Public Safety Initiative at the Manhattan Institute in New York and a contributing editor of City Journal. His first book, Criminal Injustice, released just this month, July 22. He's authored and co-authored a number of Manhattan Institute reports and op-eds on issues ranging from urban crime and jail violence to broader matters of criminal and civil justice reform. The book is described in part as, quote, after a summer of violent protests in 2020, sparked by the deaths of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Richard Brooks, a dangerously false narrative gained mainstream acceptance. Criminal justice in the United States is overly punitive and racially oppressive. But the harshest and loudest condemnations of incarceration, policing, and prosecution are often shallow and at odds with the available data. And the significant harms caused by this false narrative are borne by those who can least afford them, black and brown people who are disproportionately the victims of serious crimes, end quote. Well, welcome to Policing Matters, Rafael Mangual, senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute an author and son of NYPD detective. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be on. So tell us about the book, um, Unusual. Uh, the, the subtitle is What the Push for Decarceration and Depolicing Gets Wrong and Who It Hurts the Most. What prompted you to write it? Um, a few things, but I, I think one thing more than others, and that was just the the barrage of stories that I had been reading, you know, in in the lead up to to writing this book, of really heinous and terrible crimes, homicides, shootings, rapes, robberies committed by people who had very very lengthy criminal histories, active criminal justice statuses. In other words, people who had no business being out on the street, but were because the system had had failed to do its job and incapacitate these folks. And then, of course, someone had to pay the price for that mistake. Um, you know, one of the stories that I, I tell at the beginning of the book um, is is of a shooting of a 24-year-old mother in, in the city of Chicago on the west side in the neighborhood of Boston. This shooting was caught on video. Um, there was a Chicago PD surveillance camera that was actually overlooking the block where this happened. And you can see this woman's broad daylight. She's holding a one-year-old baby girl in her arms and a car pulls up and opens fire. She shields her baby tries to take off running, doesn't get but a few feet before she collapses because she had been fatally wounded just inches from where she was carrying her child. Um, And she bleeds out, 
you know, gets dragged off to the hospital where she's pronounced dead, that little girl being left without a mother, um, you know, one of the most terrible things in the world. But because it was caught on video, the police were able to make an arrest uh, within, you know, I think a few hours. And one of the individuals charged with that crime had nine prior felony convictions, including for second degree murder and was out on parole at the time. And so when you tell some of these stories to regular people, uh, you know, at a dinner party or, you know, work event or something, they ask, you know, well, what is someone like that doing on the street as if that is an anomaly? And the reality is, is that it, it's actually much more common than I think people realize that the narrative in the country is that we sort of systematically deny second chances to people. We have second chance month. Um, but uh, the the fact of the matter is, is that we often give second, third, fourth, fifth, and 15th chances uh, on a pretty regular basis. And so one of the things that I wanted to do was highlight that reality for people um, who don't understand uh, that, that in fact, the criminal justice system, while it can be too harsh in some contexts, is often not harsh enough in a lot of others. Um, and so I wanted to just kind of dispel some of the myths and, and poke some holes in the dominant narratives about not just incarceration, but also policing, uh, police use of force, and, and, and you know the, the, the likely effect of a lot of popular police reforms. And then also just kind of take on the question of systemic racism in criminal justice, which I think animates a lot of the, the sort of really harsh critiques and, and raises the temperature of this debate to the point that, that it becomes really hard to have productive conversations because everyone's kind of on edge and um, you know, has kind of taken defensive positions. And so I, I wanted this book to, you know, really lean into the data um, and, and illustrate, you know, what the data actually mean through stories that that I hope will, will help people see what the downside risk is that's associated with programs like defunding the police, like mass decarceration, um, bail reform, and lots of lots of other really popular ideas um, that that are not risk free endeavors. Yeah, no, I, I'm glad you mentioned all of those. We'll be talking about those. And I was really um, you know, interested to hear what you say about incapacitation. You mentioned that and the fact that there is that false narrative out there that everybody goes to prison, right? That their jails, I think that was part of the drug um, movement, drug reform movement, that there was that false narrative that county and state prisons were just full of drug dealers or drug user drug users i should say and that's that's patently false you know the numbers in california are probably much lower than the 20 percent uh, of their highs you know 10 years ago and we've had such reforms that that number is even lower today um are you highlighting the flaws of the new movement or are you talking about systemic uh, issues over the past 40, 50 years. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a little bit of both, but I wouldn't say it's a new movement either. I mean, one of my favorite books on criminal justice, one that really helped kind of form, you know, um, a lot of my thinking on this topic as, as a journalist was James Q. Wilson's Thinking About Crime, which I think was first published in 1975. Uh, and I, I think the second edition was reissued in 1983. That book is taking on a lot of the very same arguments that we hear today in, you know, um, in mainstream media and legacy media outlets uh, being kind of parroted. Um, if you look, you can go back to, I think, the early 1990s and William F. Buckley hosted a, a firing line debate uh, on, on in mass incarceration where a lot of the same arguments that we hear today were being made back then. So it's not so much that this is a new movement. What I do think has happened, though, is that the proliferation of cell phone cameras, the uh, advent of social media, 
has really given this movement a new life. Um, it has uh, allowed activists to create the impression that even really rare things um, happen every day, which they do in a country of 330 or 40 million people. Uh, but then that creates the impression that they're not rare events and that they're mm -hmm. very common events. And so um, it's been a lot more difficult uh, to push back against the kind of more radical reform agendas, uh, I think in part because of, of that new reality uh, brought about by social media, cell phone cameras, et cetera, but also by virtue of the fact that we figured out how to reduce crime uh, over the course of the 1990s and early 2000s. And those big, big gains made it much easier to argue that the sort of uh, tough edges of our criminal justice system were uh, no longer needed. And I think it makes people much less comfortable with a, a more aggressive posture toward crime uh, when crime levels go down the way that they did over the course of the 1990s it becomes much harder to justify. And I think it makes it more likely that people kind of forget what brought that safety about. Um, and so, you know, in, in the book, I, I quote a, um, a criminal historian, uh, Eric Monkinen, who says, you know, something along the lines of, you know, as as crime goes up, we, we sort of harden the system um, in, in ways that that that, um, you know, make crime uh, eventually start to go down. And then as crime goes down, people become uncomfortable with those systems, hard edges and then soften the system, which then creates the condition for the next crime rise. You know, his argument is that this is always just going to be cyclical. I, I suspect he's right. What I hope, you know, this book does and what I hope my contribution to the debate will be is that each time the pendulum kind of swings past the point of equilibrium, it doesn't go as far past that point as it did the last time around. And, you know, over the course of, of our, you know, still relatively young history as a country, we will uh, uh, work closer and closer toward uh, that proper balance point. Yeah, I don't know about that. I, I might disagree with you on that, because I think there was a, a tremendous overswing to the left or the liberal side, um, you know, since the, the events before the pandemic and the pandemic just seemed to magnify everything. And, and maybe that was an influence on, on the vast overshift um, to the point of defunding and legislation changes and um, you know, talks of uh, removing qualified immunity and other things that have been around for, for so off, so long. And you mentioned James Q. Wilson, one of my favorites. Um, James Q. Wilson, of course, with George Kelling wrote the uh, broken windows and fixing broken windows uh, that seminal articles that pretty much paved the way to uh, fixing problems at, at the yeah. lower level before they become bigger problems. And uh, we talk about that at, at school and, um, you know, it's like everything else. It's been bastardized and criticized as uh, being unfair to black and brown communities, poor communities that, uh, you know, that they're misused. And, right. you know, the alternative is that we allow uh, public housing or other areas of town that, that might not get so much attention to just be run down. And that's a cycle in itself. Absolutely. So yeah. law, law enforcement has been often criticized as, you know, doing enforcement programs and operations and zero tolerance and trial and error and even random at times. But uh, you're in New York, and I'm sure you've followed Bill Bratton and the NYPD revolution using Comstat and crime mapping, um, Jack Maple, uh, over the decades, we have evolved and 
there are so many think tanks like yours and the American Society of Evidence-Based Policing that do studies to see what works. Uh, now the critics say that the data is biased. Uh, right. It seems like we can't win. What, how do we convince those who want to you know, talk about evidence-based practices and yet then retreat to, well, except for when we, we go by compassion, right? We allow people to flop around in the street and overdose and you know, live in tents and defecate on the streets. What's the balance? How do we get the message to those? Uh, or, or how do we create a, a non-emotional uh, critical thought process? Yeah, I think I mean my approach has been to to make the case that that compassion is not incongruous with the kind of enforcement program that I think we need right now uh, and that I think we've always needed. You know, there's this idea that we should just focus almost exclusively on the costs and burdens associated with the kind of enforcement programs that have produced crime declines uh, in cities around the country. Uh, and and yeah, that should certainly be part of the conversation, right? Where you know any any public policy issue is trying to weigh costs and benefits, but benefits are a part of the conversation too. And there's often a, a sort of tendency to ignore one side of the ledger. And the reality is is that yes, while the costs associated with you know certain kinds of approaches to enforcement, incarceration, prosecution, et cetera, are disproportionately borne by low-income minority communities, so too are the benefits associated with crime declines that those programs produce disproportionately enjoyed by low-income minority communities. I like to remind people that in my home city of New York, a minimum, a minimum of 95% of all shooting victims every year for which we have data are either black or Hispanic, almost all of them men. That's a minimum. I think last year was over 96%. At that point, it might as well be 100%, right? That's one of the most persistent and starkest disparities in the criminal justice data that we have, and it gets almost no attention. Why focus on that? Because if you can cut shootings in half, like we did over the course of the 1990s, then it's black and brown communities that are going to reap the majority of the benefits because they were the ones suffering the brunt of the problem. And so if you look at the homicide decline between 1990 and 2014, uh, homicides across the United States declined precipitously. And that added one full year of life expectancy to the average black man in the United States. It added 0.14 years of life expectancy to the average white man. Um, that is a huge, huge disparity in terms of the dispersion of the benefits associated with that kind of, of success. And so what I ask people is, you know, how can you how can you square these two claims? One being that the criminal justice system and the institutions within it are designed and operated uh, for the purpose of oppressing low-income minority communities with the reality that when the criminal justice system achieves its stated end, as stated by the people at the system's helm, right? Ask any police chief in America, what do you want to do? How should we measure your success? And they say, crime has to go down. That's That's what we're trying to achieve. Well, when that happens, who benefits? It's not you know, uh, high-income white communities. I mean, they benefit a little bit, but nowhere near as much as low-income minority communities do. And so, you know, there's a real kind of incongruity in the argument that 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 hasn't quite been uh, flushed out 
well. And, and it's, I think it's because people just have this tendency to focus only on costs, not on benefits. And when you do that, you realize um, that it's actually a much more complex uh, uh, conversation that we need to have. Um, but I think that makes people uncomfortable because they're comfortable being activists, having an, an easy enemy, um, you know, to argue against. And, and you know, frankly, uh, I suspect that, that, you know, a lot of a lot of professional lives are kind of built around that dynamic. Yeah. And I mean, when you mention crime data and, you know, every chief wants crime stats to go down. Well, I think, you know, the data has been manipulated to the point where they can easily say crime is down when, in fact, in places like Baltimore, where they've wiped some crime um, incidents off the books in all practicality, they've told the police they're not going to prosecute and they don't want people arrested for these low level crimes in California. Proposition 47 made all drug possession a misdemeanor from a felony. It turned uh, thefts uh, down from felonies to misdemeanor. It raised the threshold of felony theft from $400 to $950. So the stats have been manipulated over the past decade. Um, we're having a real trouble with uh, accurate data in policing in, in the FBI uniform crime reports change from the FBI UCR uniform crime reports to NIBRS. NIBRS, yeah. And I think last year, the a lot of the stats weren't even published because half of the agencies did not turn in the information. So, yeah, it's one what, of the reasons why I focus so heavily on shootings and homicides. Mm -hmm. um, you know, homicide statistics, I think, are, are a lot harder to manipulate, right? You got a dead body with holes in it. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's, it's hard to categorize that as, as anything else. You know, and and shooting data, I suspect, may have even gotten better over the years as technology like ShotSpotter becomes more widely used. You know, mm. um, you know, it's it, it, you know, I, I suppose you know, around July Fourth, maybe maybe fireworks can confuse those kinds of systems a bit, but it certainly gives us a, a better idea of you know um, when and where shootings are happening, and and the where is a really important part too that I. I it's a point I didn't get a chance to make in, in response to the last question, but I think it's relevant, which is that I don't think people fully appreciate the degree to which serious crime is concentrated. Mm -hmm. um, in New York, 5% of street segments see 50% of all crime. A street segment is corner to corner, both sides of the street. 3.5% of street segments see 50% of all violent crime in the city. That kind of ratio has been replicated in cities, not just across the country, but across the world. It's called the law of crime concentration. Highly recommend to your readers uh, uh, the work of David Weisberg, who's who's done these kinds of analysis um, in, in cities around the country. It's a really great book called The Criminology of Place, uh, again, that I would very, very much recommend. But you know what that means there are a couple of things. One, it tells us a bit about who actually stands to gain the most if crime goes down. It also tells us who stands to lose the most if crime goes up. But it also helps contextualize a lot of the enforcement statistics that people rely on to make the cases about disproportionality. Right. I don't think that anyone would reject the idea that police ought to deploy their resources disproportionately to the areas where crime is most concentrated. Right. I'm old enough to remember where the, the, the kind of uh, main critique of policing in urban America was that they weren't responsive enough to black crime. Right. You would hear in mm -hmm. rap music, you know, references to how quickly police respond to 911 calls in white neighborhoods versus black neighborhoods. There was a sense that they, you know, they didn't really care 
Um, well, now, because of data, because of, of, of things like CompStat and crime mapping, police resources are being disproportionately deployed to the places with the highest levels of crime. But that means that that's where police are going to have the most interactions. And if those areas happen to have an overrepresentation of certain demographic groups, we have to control for that when we're evaluating statistics on disparities in use of force, in arrests, in stops and searches. Mm. Um, we, we haven't seen yet is a, a willingness to have that more uh, a multivariate uh, kind of approach to the analysis. And, and I think it's really skewed um, and, and debased our, our national debate about these things. Yeah, and I want to talk about that. I want to talk about a couple of the pretty significant changes over the last five years um, that, that have led to what, what seems like you know, a direct correlation with violent crime in those cities that we're talking about. But first, I'd like to take a moment and thank our sponsor. Polco's National Law Enforcement Survey provides a comprehensive, accurate, and representative picture of resident opinions related to police services. Compare your results with other agencies around the nation. Align your priorities with community sentiment, build trust, and improve safety services. Visit info dot polco dot us to learn more and we're back and i'm speaking with rafael mangual a senior fellow at the manhattan institute and the author of criminal injustice what the push for decarceration and depolicing gets wrong and who it hurts the most so rafael what can we expect uh what's the let me first ask about the influence of the bail reform movement and Nobody stays in jail anymore um, pending uh, trial that uh, it's unfair. It's been it's been linked to the Eighth Amendment, uh, cruel and unusual and excessive bail. Um, and so the, the narrative was that only wealthy people could get out and aid in their own defense and things like that because of bail. And so in the cities where uh, bail reform was really an issue, We've seen maybe anecdotal, but it seems like an awful lot of uh, chronic recidivists released without bail, uh, pending uh, trial or pending court appearances for serious charges, only to reoffend again, often with um, new crimes, violent crimes. Uh, do you talk about that in the book? What's what's the answer there? Yeah, I do. I do talk about that. In fact, there's a whole chapter on on the pretrial detention issue. Um, and one of the reasons I really wanted to to, to kind of uh, home in on that was because I'm actually sympathetic to the reform case for bail. I, I I do think that in a system that overly relies on monetary conditions on release, you risk creating a situation in which a wealthy but um, dangerous defendant gets to buy his or her freedom, whereas a relatively uh, harmless indigent defendant gets stuck behind bars. The question is, is how do we address that problem? Well, one, we start by not overstating it, right? And I think that, that that problem was very much overstated in the push uh, uh, for a lot of these reforms in jurisdictions across the country. But two, you know, there are a couple of approaches. The approach uh, that's that's kind of won out in a lot of places, New York in particular, has been to just basically move to eliminate cash bail so that you minimize the risk of people not being able uh, uh, to purchase their release. Um, but then you end up with lots of people who deserve to be, um, you know, behind bars during the pretrial detention period, uh, uh, ending up uh, on the street. My approach is that basically we should just reorient the pretrial release inquiry around risk. If you're, if you pose a high risk 
of reoffending during the pretrial period or of absconding, then you should be held, irrespective mm-hmm. of how much money you have, irrespective of the crime that you are charged with, right? There's this kind of um, there's this sense that we can sort of assess somebody's risk simply by virtue of the nature of the charges in the instant case, right? So, oh, this guy's only charged with a misdemeanor. We can we can go ahead and, and release him. Well, actually, there are studies showing that people who are facing misdemeanor charges are actually more likely to reoffend during the pretrial period than people facing felony charges. Why? Because the instant charge is not actually a pretty good indicator of risk. What we need to do is a more holistic risk assessment of individuals who come before the criminal justice system. And when those individuals are found to be dangerous, pursuant to the presentation of evidence that gets to be you know challenged by the defense, et cetera, in a hearing. Um, then they should be held. And if we do that, I think we will be able to maintain the kind of incapacitation benefits associated with a properly operating uh, uh, pretrial detention system without imposing some of the unwarranted costs that get imposed um, through systems that are overly reliant on cash. Would I get rid of cash bail altogether? No. The reason for this is, is that I do think there's probably a subset, a small subset, but a subset nonetheless of um the pretrial population for whom you could sufficiently mitigate the risk of either absconding or reoffending by having them put up some money. And if you tie, you know, their pretrial behavior to that money, maybe you can mitigate that risk. Um, so I think that should remain an option for them. I'd, I'd much rather have that subset, you know, um, put up some money and get released as opposed to, you know, get incarcerated. Um, do I think it's a large subset? Again, no. Um, but that's why I wouldn't take cash completely off the table. But but yeah, what what I think we've seen is that cities like, you know, states like New York have constructed their bail reforms in ways that really minimize the ability of judges to exercise discretion in this direction. Mm. And New York being the only state in the union that completely disallows judges from considering public safety risk in any aspect of the pretrial release decision. They can't consider it when deciding whether or not to release somebody at all. They can't even consider it when deciding whether to put any conditions on somebody's release, like an electronic monitor or having them report to a probation officer, et cetera. Um, So that I think is kind of the most extreme example. But even in jurisdictions where the reforms have been constructed well, which is to say where judges retain the discretion to to remand people to pretrial detention based on risk, what you see is an unwillingness on the part of some prosecutors' offices, as well as some judges to actually pull that lever. That's a real problem. And it's one of the reasons why I think, you know, there's been a lot of resistance to bail reform and a lot of of support for bringing cash bail back, because they're at least, you know, for whatever reason, judges seem more willing to just impose cash that's going to keep somebody inside, as opposed to saying, I'm just going to deny your your release altogether. Um, you know, there's there's a critique that says that people shouldn't be allowed to to reband people to pretrial detention, you know, because they have a presumption of innocence, et cetera. But, you know, this is the question that the Supreme Court has addressed on multiple occasions, you know, the most prominent one being U.S. versus Salerno, where they, where they held, you know, that that it's perfectly congruent with, you know, constitutional due process requirements to hold a dangerous offender in pretrial detention for a limited period of time, right? And that's mm-hmm. the other thing. I think one of the main reasons that bail reform has become such a hot button issue is a function of how long people stand to spend in pretrial detention if they can't get their release. And that's entirely a, a function of resources. And you know what's unsaid in a lot of these debates is the degree to which criminal justice systems across this country are underfunded, mm-hmm. are underinvested in. It is in a in a country as advanced as ours, in cities with budgets like you know, we have here in New York and San Francisco and Los Angeles that that it would take years for a case to get from filing to disposition is is absolutely wild to me. Um, 
And what that tells us is that we have spent a lot of money on things that the government probably shouldn't be spending money on, and that's crowded out our ability to properly fund the sort of central duties that the government is supposed to perform, and that is to dispose of criminal cases in a timely manner. Um, you know, so so one of the things that I would add to my kind of ideal bail reform, in addition to giving judges the discretion to remand dangerous defendants, irrespective of the charges that they face, is to place a real cap on the amount of time that someone's going to spend in pretrial detention and then fund the system so that it can actually move that case along in a more timely manner. Now, you know, that means we need more prosecutors, more defense attorneys, more magistrate judges, and more carceral capacity. Yeah, I, I, I hear what you say. We use a matrix uh, out here in San Francisco, um, algorithms, an actual software program. Mm -hmm. And still, you, you get the violent uh, offenders who, I mean, in common sense, looking at the, the record, you would say, there's no way this guy gets out, and yet they're out. And then the idea of using, giving judges more discretion, um, you know, depending on which judge you get, right. you might want to walk that one back a little bit. Well, um, this is, yeah, this is the central problem, right? This is why I think there's been resistance to the reforms and, and a push to just bring back the old cash bail system is because I think people are realizing that when you have something like the progressive prosecutor movement, where prosecutors aren't even going to ask for pretrial detention in certain cases, um, and you have, you know, the kind of... Uh, leftward shift among the judiciary in a lot of big cities, judges can't really be relied on to pull these levers in appropriate cases. And, you know, that's that to me is just a political problem that requires a political solution. Um, you know, the question I try to answer is what's the ideal public policy framework? Um, you know, but but of course, uh, public policies are only as good as the humans implementing them. Yeah, we we talk sometimes in class kicking around ideas. How can we make bail work, maybe a sliding scale um, to take race and gender out of it, maybe just present the judge with a barcode, no names, no photos. And here are the facts of the allegations. Here's the criminal background and the violence um, history. And let well, them people say, people say what they say here in New York, which is that well, the criminal history data is is racist in and of itself because it reflects an over-policing of low-income minority communities, right? So there was a big push to actually redesign the algorithm here in New York City to minimize the weight given to criminal history because that was associated with the disparity in, in risk ratings uh, between and among racial groups. What they ignored was that the, the algorithm was actually equally predictive of risk across all racial groups. It's just that when the algorithm gets it wrong, which is to say when it predicts someone is high risk and that person doesn't reoffend, or when it predicts someone is low risk and that person does reoffend, it's more likely to predict to erroneously predict someone is high risk if that person is black, and that's a function of the criminal history weight. Um, you know, again, you can you can opt for a system that works as best as we know how to make it work, or you can opt for a system that makes you feel good inside. Um, but you you know you can't necessarily have both. And um, again, what I try to remind people is that. It's the, the inquiry doesn't stop with the impact on the offender. There are real people living in real communities who are going to have to suffer the cost of the crimes that these individuals commit if they're released. And those people aren't white either. Mm -hmm. And they matter. Their yeah. lives matter. Their, their sense of security matters. Their ability to go out 
carry out their lives without worrying about getting shot or, be, you know, are my kids going to get robbed? You know, I, I remember like my parents having a discussion about whether they should buy me a certain bike when I was a kid living in Brooklyn in the 1990s because they didn't want other kids to get jealous and steal it from me. Sure. When we moved to Long Island, that was never a concern, right? It's, you know, that, but that families shouldn't have to deal with that. Um, and, and so, you know, if, if people are uncomfortable with what the disparities in enforcement look like, you know, I think uh, it, it is incumbent on them to really deeply consider the disparities in victimization, uh, because again, those, those costs are not evenly distributed either. Yeah, you know, I mean, we, it's, <laughs> we can talk all day. Uh, I think people are going to have to buy your book to find out the answers. I have questions about the drug war and harm reduction, what a fiasco that is. Questions about youth crime. I know you address that in the book. Um, but I want to wrap up um, being respectful of your time uh, and our listeners. Where do we go from here? We've seen a crack in the progressive formula in San Francisco here that we recalled uh, the very progressive district attorney who's actually the son of domestic terrorists, right? Mm -hmm. And um, we've seen out in um, uh, Maryland, uh, a, a very liberal prosecutor prosecutor um, removed from office or not um, reelected. And uh, there are a couple other recalls going around uh, on these progressive uh, district attorneys. Did we learn our lesson? Are we turning the corner? Has America said, hey, wait a minute, um, you know, these, uh, these progressive ideals just go too far and now we're at risk. I'm not quite sure. I'm not quite sure. I, I'm not as optimistic as some people might be in the wake of some of these new developments, right? I think the Chester Boudin recall, for example, was largely a function of a uniquely bad public order problem in San Francisco that was not as concentrated as the violence problem is concentrated in other jurisdictions, which is to say that the middle, upper middle, and upper class had to deal with the downside effects of the just absolute deterioration in public order on the streets of San Francisco in a way that maybe they can, they don't have to deal with uh, in, in other cities. And so when you have the politically active classes affected in such a deep way, um, in such a shocking way, I think it becomes more likely for a political response uh, uh, along the lines of what we saw there. But San Francisco, you know, doesn't also doesn't have the kind of violence problem that, say, Philadelphia has on its north side, which is, of course, very concentrated in black neighborhoods there. And yet Larry Krasner last year sailed to reelection in that city as the progressive prosecutor uh, on whose watch I think more than 100 additional people have died every year since he's been in office compared to the time period before he took office. Um, you know, you pointed to Marilyn Mosby. Is that a positive development? I think so. But, you know, she's also under indictment. <laughs> it's, it's, I think it's, you know, she probably had a harder run than maybe she would have had that not been the case. Um, and, you know, a lot of other people also point to New York, where Eric Adams was, you know, uh, elected mayor on a kind of anti-crime platform. But in that same election, we elected Alvin Bragg, the new DA of, of Manhattan, who was just outwardly um, open about his uh, uh, push to decarcerate and, and radically reform the criminal justice system from within. We elected Tiffany Caban, who ran and came very close to being the DA in Queens, New York, uh, to a city council seat. And she's an outward abolitionist. Uh, so, you know, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not entirely sure that uh, we're moving in the right direction just yet. Um, 
but I, I do expect that as things get worse, people will start to question uh, the more lenient approach that we've taken over the last decade. The same way that they did, you know, in the the starting in the late seventies through the eighties and nineties, eventually culminating in what I think was, you know, probably the greatest achievement in urban American history, which was the just massive, massive decline in violent crime in cities across the U.S. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hey, thanks so much for taking time being on the show. Raphael Mangual, senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute and author of Criminal Injustice, What the Push for Decarceration and Depolicing Gets Wrong and Who It Hurts Most. I can't wait to read it, and I hope to talk to you again real soon. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks so much for having me. It was a real pleasure. All right. If you haven't checked out uh, City Journal or the Manhattan Institute, Uh, You can take a look and see uh, some of the other things Raphael has written. You can check out his book wherever the books are sold. You'll see a link uh, under our show notes. And uh, let me know what you think. And let me know what you want to hear about, who you'd like to hear from. And uh, what else? What what are the questions that we can answer for you? Hey, thanks a lot for listening. Stay safe and hope to chat you again real soon. Take good care.